tell you that we are in the fourth week now of our series on the letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. And the reason we're here is because we are, as leaders, earnestly seeking God's will and his leading for our church in this season. And this, this deal about God's will, a couple of important things to know are what kind of people God wants us to be and, and what kind of things he wants us to be doing. And this section of scripture in Revelation is full of that stuff as it pertains to the church. So that's why we're here. And uh, in, in fact, I'll just sidebar quickly on this God's will thing, because I'm going to kind of reference this a couple times today. God's word as a whole, not just this section of Revelation, God's word as a whole uh, has all kinds of stuff in it about his will for our lives as believers. And yes, there is definitely such a thing as we should ask God for things and seek like a particular word that he has for us and particular leadings, absolutely. And let's do that. But I'm just saying that generally speaking, a lot of times, if you wanna know God's will, you can look right here, okay? So let's not forget that. And today, this theme of God's will is going to be kind of floating around as we go through this. So again, if you have your Bible, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 is where we're going. So go there now. Phone Bible counts. It's also on the screen. It starts out by saying, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right. Somebody say Pergamum. All right. Seeing what I'm dealing with. That's all. Next thing on the screen should be a map. Yes, because we've had the conversation. I'm a map guy. This is what I literally have a large map in my office. This is where I'm at. Maps all through my house. Lori could attest to that. So this one here, this is a little more uh, sort of cartoony than the last couple we've used, but I wanted to show this one because it has all the locations of the seven churches we're talking about. And this is in the western part of the country that is now Turkey in today's day and age. And Pergamum is the one furthest to the northwest. And for you non-map people, that's up and to the left, okay? I'm just helping you out. And, and a couple things quickly about Pergamum. Uh, it was a major Roman city in its day, and it had upwards, estimated population of upwards of 200,000 people. So it's a big city, lots of stuff going on. It was also a major center for pagan religion. And we're going to see that in a minute. The text continues. It says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword... The hymn in reference is the Lord Jesus. This is Jesus speaking. And it, this is, like we've talked about, this is big Jesus. This is conquering king, ruling and reigning, Lord Jesus. And when we hear him speak as his people, we ought to listen. So that's where we're at. And, and the sharp two-edged sword thing, by the way, you might say that looks familiar to me. That's in scripture in other places, like Hebrews 4.12 is one of them. This is a reference to the word of God, Okay. This is a reminder right away as we get into our text that God's word is of vital importance for the church. We must be faithful to it. We, we must not stray from it. Uh, it's, it's a must for us. He, Jesus continues, and this is where he begins speaking. He says in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And uh, when I read that, here's where my mind goes. That's not a very good town slogan, amen? Like when, uh, you know how it is, you go into different cities or places and they've got their big sign and it says home of the whatever, like even St. John, at least we used to have the billboard that had like the loyalist man on it because we're the loyalist city. Uh, last week, I was driving through Quispamsis on the highway and they have a sign out there, which probably a lot of taxpayer dollars went into, just saying, and it says, Quispamsis voted number one community to live in in Atlantic Canada. 
And I said, that's pretty good. That's pretty legit. And then you've got Pergamum, the home of Satan's throne. Okay? Not quite the same. Hey, tourism's down this year. We don't really know why. Everyone who's coming is weird. Anyway, this... Uh, it's enough of that. And uh, th this is likely a reference to, like I, I said, about the widespread religious, pagan religious practices that happen in Pergamum. So for instance, in Pergamum, there was a temple, a place of worship dedicated to the divine Augustus and the goddess Roma. This is like AKA Caesar Augustus, the Roman emperor, that's emperor worship. There was also a temple dedicated to Asclepios. Somebody say Asclepios and use your hands. Asclepios, it's very Greek. I don't know. Anyway, he apparently was the God of healing. He was represented by serpents. So he was a nice guy evidently. And uh, there was also in Pergamum, a large altar dedicated to Zeus. And there were even other things uh, that we won't even go into today. But for all of these reasons, Jesus calls Pergamum the site of Satan's throne. And what you need to remember about Satan is this, his whole angle, his whole bit is that he wanted, he wants to be worshiped as God, right? His goal is that worship would be deflected away from the true God and on to other sources or other places like himself. And uh, in Pergamum, there's lots of worship happening, but a lot of it isn't to the true and living God. And this is likened to the activity of Satan. That's what this is saying. Now, Jesus has some good things to say about this church. A couple of attaboys for them. And uh, he starts out by saying this, yet... AKA, even though you live in a difficult place where the home of Satan's throne is, you hold fast my name and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you. And here it is again, where Satan dwells. What I want you to see in that, the commendation there is that was steadfastness in persecution. And that should sound familiar. You should see that theme popping up in a lot of these churches, steadfastness in persecution. And there was evidently a guy in Pergamum who belonged to the church named Antipas. And that's just the name that the more you say it, the more you like it, Antipas. Like, I just love it. Anyway, and he was murdered, martyred, killed for his faith. And obviously that's a pretty serious thing. That's pretty serious persecution. And that would be enough for some people to say, whoa, I don't really want to die. So see you, Lord, I'm out of here, okay? But what Jesus is saying, the church in Pergamum did not do that. They remained faithful and steadfast to him even though they were in the middle of persecution. These guys did not live in a very easy ministry climate, yet they kept on. And this is a very good thing. And we've talked about that. All that said, that's about where the good things end for these guys. And we start to kind of get off the rails a little bit. Jesus has some rebukes, some corrections, some encouragements on things that should change in this church. And he starts those out in verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you. I'll even just pause there. I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but it's worth saying again. I want you to notice Jesus doesn't say, I am against you, okay? Because as the church, as God's people, we need to remember that God is for us. God is for us. Now, if you're not a Christian, God absolutely still loves you for sure. But his will for you is that you would become a Christian, that you would accept Jesus, the sacrifice that he made on the cross for you to pay for your sins. His will is that you would become a Christian. 
Anyway, what I'm saying is as Christians, God is for us. That doesn't mean though that there might not be a thing or two in my life as a Christian that he is not for, he's against. He would like to see that change. Do you guys get that distinction? That's very important. Okay, so I have a few things against you, Jesus says. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So, we get to do a little bit of Old Testament history here, and somebody says, oh no, (laughs) I'm out of here. I promise it will be not only painless, you might enjoy this. I promise. So, in the Old Testament, we read about the Israelites, God's people, God's chosen nation, and they're in slavery in Egypt, and God comes to them, he rescues them, frees them, brings them out, from their slave uh, masters, and he frees them. And that's pretty cool. And so then the Israelites are making their way sort of toward the promised land. They're wandering around in the desert. And during this time, they're increasing in number. They are, uh, they are kind of becoming stronger, like they're gonna be a big military force because God is with them. And it's at this moment we pick up the story. There was a guy named Balak, somebody say Balak. I don't even know if I'm saying that right, but that's how we're going to say it, Balak. And he was the king of Moab. Moab is, is a different nation than Israel, and he wants to beat the Israelites in battle. This Balak does. But he knows that he needs help because he, he knows that God is on their side and he's going to have some problems if he just like rushes into combat with them. So... Balak makes a friendly trip to Kijiji and he finds what he's looking for, this guy Balaam. Somebody say Balaam. Okay. And Balaam gets hired by Balak to go and put a curse on the Israelites. He says, I want you to go over there and curse them, put a hex on them, throw them into a stupor so that I can swoop in and defeat them in battle. That was the strategy. So Balaam rather says, anything for a dollar. And he sets off. But on his way to curse the Israelites, he has an encounter with God on the road. Which, sidebar, that's one of my all-time favorite Bible stories, Numbers 22, Balaam and his donkey, go read that. It will minister to you, it's hilarious. Anyway, so he has this little chat with God on the road, and, and Balaam decides, okay, I'm not going to curse the Israelites after all. He's changed his mind. And he evidently goes back to Balak, and he says, uh, sorry, not going to do it. And by the way, your deposit was non-refundable, so sorry about that too. But he says that... Uh, He says, I'm not going to curse them, but what he does evidently, Balaam, he says, I won't curse them, but I'm going to tell you how you can beat them. I'm going to spill the beans on their secret. And that reminded me this week about an illustration I will give. How many of you, and I hope and pray and trust the Lord that many hands will rise, how many of you have seen the Lord of the Rings movies? Okay. That might be, maybe we'll do that for our next church activity or something. We'll carve out like 12 hours and watch the Lord of the Rings movies. (laughs) Anyway, so okay, second movie, Lord of the Rings, the second movie called The Two Towers. Here's the nutshell. There's the good guys and the bad guys. The bad guys want to take out the good guys. Pretty standard. And uh, the good guys are vastly outnumbered and they're going to be defeated. They say, we can't stay in our city because we'll get just destroyed. So they set off for their stronghold, their fortress, which somebody helped me out, which was called 
That just warms my soul. Thank you. Helm's Deep. Okay, and Helm's Deep is this like right built into the mountains, stronghold, castle, really thick walls. And they say, there, we're safe in here. No one's going to get us. The problem, though, was that there was a traitor that went out from the good guys to the bad guys. He was that guy, Worm Tongue, and he had the long hair, the creepy, and his skin was like pasty and vitamin D was probably necessary. But anyway, he goes to the bad guys and he says, you're not going to beat them at Helm's Deep. It's not going to happen if you just waltz in there and start shooting at them. It's not going to happen. But he says, and I won't do his creepy voice, but he says, Helm's Deep has one weakness. And basically there was this drainage, spoiler alert, this drainage kind of duct with a grate in it that the water came through. And he said, if you basically send someone in there with kind of a bomb, it'll blow the wall to smithereens and you can run right in. And that's sort of, kind of, not really, but a little bit what's happening here. Balaam says to Balak, you're not gonna beat them and I'm not gonna curse them, but here's what you can do. They're susceptible to, in Israel's case, it was foreign women. So God had already told the Israelites, don't intermarry, don't intermingle with foreign women because you will get off track. You will be led astray. They will bring uh, into your house their religious practices and you're gonna veer off the path that I want you to be on. And that's exactly what happened, okay? These foreign women were sent in by Balak and the Israelites got totally messed up. They, all of a sudden, there's sexual immorality just going like crazy. There's food eaten that's sacrificed to idols. It's a gong show. It's a nightmare. Like God's path is this way. They're way over this way. That's what's going on here. That's a roundabout way of saying the focus here is on the fact that God's people went astray. Okay? They fell prey to deception. It was alluring. They got sucked in and they left the path of God's will and his word and his faithfulness and they went into unfaithfulness and sin. And this is a very, very, very big deal to God. A very big deal. Verse 15, uh, Jesus says, So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Remember the Nicolaitans from a couple weeks ago and I said it looks like it should be pronounced Nicolaitans but it's not and I have to get over it but obviously I haven't. That's these guys. And again, we don't know a lot about them but the context is pretty clear. They're offside with God. They're out of God's will possibly in the realm of sexual immorality. Whether the situation in Pergamum was specifically about sexual immorality or it's just a comparison being made, here's the point. There were evidently people in the church at Pergamum who were not in line with God's will or God's word. That's what's happening here. That is kind of the focus that Jesus is, is zooming in on here. And this is not just, I need you to see this, this is not just like, oh, we disagree over a minor point. You know, that's probably a translation issue in the Greek. This is like large scale, here's my will, here's my path, and you have forsaken that and gone over this way. It's a big deal. And the word for that is apostasy. Somebody say apostasy. apostasy. An apostasy, thank you, is a willful rejection. It's a slipping into serious sin. It's totally missing the mark and sort of kind of just being okay with it. 
That's what apostasy is. And, and this is a problem, obviously, because God expects the church to live in a way that is faithful to him and faithful to what is written in his word. And when we are apostate, when we're in apostasy, by definition, that means we've veered off. And, and, and this is not an area for compromise, I will say. This is, this is, if we are out of line with the scriptures as a church, we are sunk. Because that means by default, we're out of God's will. And, and we're totally sunk, friends, if the situation we are in is that we claim to be Christians, we claim to belong to Jesus, we say, yes, we follow his path, but then we don't actually live like that. That's a problem. And that's what was happening at Pergamum. Jesus gives the answer, though, in verse 16. He says, therefore, what? Repent. And I hope you're not, I hope you're not sick of that word yet. Because not only are we going to talk about it some more in the coming weeks, this is actually something that's really important for us to grasp as Christians on an ongoing basis. Because if you're anything like me, and you... <laughs> You slip into some dumb things once in a while. I don't know about you, like I need God's grace. I need his forgiveness. I need to repent. And it's a very good thing to repent. And I would do well as a Christian who still struggles with some stuff sometimes to really get in on this repentance thing and practice it regularly. That's good for me. It's good for you. I digress. Repent, in case that word is unfamiliar to you, it means to turn away, to turn around. I'm going this way, and I need to be going this way. I'm off of the path God wants me to be on, and I need to get onto the path of his will in accord with his word. And, and the reason we want to do this is, listen, because he loves us. It's because when we get off track with God's will, when we're out of line with the scriptures, it's bad for us. We don't always see that. We think we're doing just great, but it's bad for us. And God loves you and he wants you to be in his will because that's the very best place for you to be. So that's a large reason why this needs to be corrected in this church. Jesus continues, he says, if not, if you don't repent, I will come to you soon and wage war against them with the sword of my mouth. Somebody says, that sounds like a threat. That can't be right, though, because my God would never threaten. But no, that's, that's pretty much a threat. That's pretty much what it is. Um, Jesus issues that threat. He says, hey, to those of you in the church that are out of line with my will, like, I'm not just going to let that slide. If you don't repent, I'm going to do something about it. And he says he's going to wage war against them. So listen, tell me this, answer me this. Does that kind of thing sound like what we should be excited about as believers, right? That like what we're doing, God would be so against it that he would wage war on us? Thank you. Amen, sister. <laughs> no, obviously not. Obviously not. And I said already, but I'll say again, like our heart is to get into the will of God, like and continue to pursue the will of God. Not this, right? This is just the opposite. So, again, you see the sword of my mouth reference there too, another reference to the word of God. So when we examine our lives against scripture, okay, when we're living in certain ways and doing certain things, Scripture not only points that out to us that we're out of line, but Scripture is God's word and it's the truth in our lives. And, and, and what he's saying is when I wage war against you with the sword of my mouth, it's listen, God's word will totally rip our 
getting off the path behavior to shreds and prove it to be not a good way to live and not God's will. Now Jesus finishes up here, verse 17. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is code for we need to listen up. He says, to the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna. I love this part, actually. Manna, you might remember, that was the food that God provided to the Israelites when they were wandering in the desert. I don't know about, if you know this, but the desert doesn't really produce a lot of food, usually. And uh, they were in it for a long time. So God, he himself provided the food, the bread that they needed to survive. Later on, when we read in John chapter 6, Jesus is talking to some people about that manna account. And he goes further to say that similarly to how God provided the bread, the manna for the Israelites to eat, John 6, 35, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So what this is saying then is when we press in and and stay faithful to Jesus and continue worshiping him, loving him, serving him, following him, listen, we will be satisfied. Somebody, like, like sometimes we go through phases and seasons in our lives and our walk as Christians and sometimes, some of you guys, I've heard you say this, oh, it's so difficult. I don't know why I'm bothering with this. I don't know why, I don't even know if it's worth it to follow the Lord. There it is right there. He satisfies us, both in the here and now and for eternity. When we, like when we press into God at the deepest level of our souls, we will not be hungry. We will not be thirsty. We will not be in need. We will not go without. We can and will be totally satisfied in the presence and the power and the person of Jesus Christ. I hope you see that today. He continues. He says, and I will give him, the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So, sounds a little different. There's a few things we could say about that. Um, Some say this is, uh, it's got Roman cultural practices kind of referenced in there. Some say that's about Old Testament references. We we don't have time to really go into that today. Um, But here's what I'll say just quickly. When it talks about the white stone, when you see the color white, in script, somebody says white's a shade, not a color. <laughs> when you see white in scripture, oftentimes it represents purity and innocence. And, and, and what I would remind you of is as Christians, we have been declared pure and innocent in the sight of God through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Do you believe that today? Yes. Then he talks about the new name. This brings to mind that we are made new in Christ. We remember like a verse like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. If if anyone is in Christ, he is a what? He's a new creation, Bible people, yes. And and the old is gone and the new has come. And and when it says that no one knows, again, this, many things this this could mean, but this speaks to an intimacy, right? A, A deep, meaningful, personal relationship that we can have with the Lord. And uh, yes, I, I, I understand, like our faith is not only private, it's very public. But I'm just saying there's something to be said about when we really press into God, like he wants a relationship with you. And, and, and there are things that are gonna be 
deep and personal and between you and him. And it's wonderful. And I hope that you desire that in your life, that kind of relationship with him and, and that kind of intimacy and closeness with the Lord. I hope that you want that and that you are seeking that and that you are growing in that. Now, again, that last bit in there, lots we could say about that. Here's, here's where I will just zoom us in. The point is this, we are to remain faithful to Christ. That's what this is saying. No matter what circumstances we face, some of you guys are facing circumstances right now that aren't very good. We are to remain faithful to Christ no matter what we encounter or come up against. We are to remain faithful to Christ no matter how we feel, right? We are to remain faithful to him even when it looks like there's a much better path to take or an easier path or one that just you know, looks like it would be more enjoyable for us. Our mandate is to remain faithful to Jesus Christ. And when we persevere in Christ, we will achieve the ultimate victory that he has secured for us. Faithfulness to Jesus is what this is all about. That's central to this text. That's central to our faith. And so, what I want to do is talk about us some more. And I don't know how that lands on you guys, if that's like, oh no, I don't want to talk about us. Well, that's what we're doing. So again, what we've said so far is essentially this. It's, it's really important to stay faithful to Jesus and follow him and be in his will at all times. And, 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 and when we choose to get ourselves out of his will, particularly in like the big, ongoing, deliberate, willful fashion, that's when we slip into this apostasy business and that's not good for us. And if we want to guard ourselves against apostasy, if we want to remain faithful to Christ, I have a few encouragements on how we can do that. The first one you can see on the screen already, it's this. We can know the scriptures. This is probably not a shock to you, but our culture bombards us with all kinds of stuff, good, bad, ugly, and newsflash, some of it is like not very in line with God's will and the character of God, amen? There are some pretty weird things going on out there, and our culture throws that at us and says, this is how you should live. This is, you know, we've advanced as a society, and this is what we do now, and we are, we are channeled and led in that kind of direction and I'm saying that because of that, it will be very easy for us to veer off of God's path, okay? If we don't know God's word and we don't know what it says, it's gonna be difficult for us because, right, you might say, well, I don't know, I was just doing what everybody else did. That's never a good excuse. Don't try that one. Or you just say, well, I was just being socially acceptable or politically correct. It is more, I would submit to you, more important than ever as Christians that we know the scriptures, we are aware of what God's word says and what it doesn't say. Because, again, there's a lot of things out there, some of which look like they could be from God, some of which look like they're really legit and good, but some of them aren't. And I'm saying, how can we possibly know the difference if we don't know what God says in his word? How can we possibly stay faithful if we have no idea about what God says, what God expects? How can we be effective as a church if we don't know the word? How can we make sure we're not veering off course if we don't know it? 
You, you, need to, you need to make sure, I just, I love you and I encourage you in this. You need to make sure you're taking time to be in God's word. And I understand because I've been there myself and sometimes I still am, there's lots of excuses not to, okay? You're not the only one who thinks that. Oh, I'm too busy. You might be very busy, I understand. You might say, well, I, I don't know, it just doesn't really sound fun to me. Scriptures are boring to read. Uh, I, I always forget to do it. I remember when my head hits the pillow at night, but then it's too tired and my light's off, so I can't. Uh, maybe you're, uh, I don't understand the scriptures. I read it and I don't know what's going on. Maybe you, you just give the honest answer and you say, I don't really want to. I just don't want to. You don't get points for honesty on this one, just saying. Uh, or maybe you're on a, a different kind of plane and you say, I've already read it. I already know what's in there. Why do I need to read it again and, and, and camp out in it? I want to encourage you by saying there is life in God's word. This, this is not just good advice, people. This is not just rules and regulations. This is not just history. This is not just some old book. This is God's word. God's word to us. And, and when we invest in it, it brings life. When we camp out in this, God meets us in it. And when we read it and soak in it and receive it with open minds and open hearts, it's very, very good for you. And I would just say this too. If you are not in the word, and I'm not condemning you and saying that, I'm encouraging you. Hey, get in the word. I'm saying if you're not in the word though, you're gonna find it really difficult to grow a whole lot in your faith. You're gonna find it difficult to know what God expects of you in any certain situation. You might find it really hard to stay faithful if you don't know what God says. That's what I'm getting at. We need to know the scriptures. The second one, point number two, is like it. This is the one we don't like to hear as much, right? To do the scriptures. And it sounds so obvious, but we make it kind of more difficult than it needs to be. Because friends, listen, it's not enough just to know the scriptures. And I'm not down, like I've just gone on about, we need to know them. I'm not downing that at all. But we need to make sure we are putting them into practice in our lives. I would just say this too, you can't put something into practice usually if you don't know it. It's kind of that revolving door factor, right? And this is where stuff kind of hits the fan for us as believers though, okay? We know the word, we know what it says, or we sort of know it, but we don't do it, okay? Oftentimes, and I have been here, what I'm about to say, I've been there myself. You have people who quite literally know better, but then they don't do better. It doesn't, it doesn't filter through properly and, and work its way into your heart and into the, the works of your hands, the things that you do. Right? Like we say, well, I know I shouldn't gossip, but wait till you hear the latest. <laughs> or I know, I know I shouldn't watch pornography, but I, I don't know, I just want to. I know I should be getting into God's word, but, well, I don't know. I, I know I shouldn't shack up with my girlfriend, but I'm going to do it anyway. I know I should be giving to the church, but I'm not going to. I know that I should be loving to my family. Oh, but they're annoying. Not my family, but, and not your family either. Somebody's family. 
Um, I, I know I should share the gospel with that person, but I don't know. This is what, like we shanghai ourselves on this so often. And, and, and again, I'll draw us back to this church at Pergamum. When you look at them, there was apostasy. There were some who took God's word and they jettisoned it in favor of something else. They, they said, we know what God wants us to do, but we're going to do our own thing. They, they, they knew, and it doesn't say how much Bible they knew in Pergamum, but I would submit at least they knew as God's people, we should be doing things the way God wants, them to, God wants us to do them. And, and, and that went right out the window for some. And it sounds so obvious that that's a bad idea, but friends, that's what we do sometimes, the very same thing. Sometimes that's what whole churches do, right? It's, well, we need to be more politically correct as a church or more relevant, or maybe it's to cover up something they're doing that they shouldn't be doing or to, to justify something they're not doing that they should, right? We, we take whole concepts and, and doctrines and scriptures and instructions and phew, scatter them to the four winds. And, uh, and sometimes we do this so that we can just get on living the way that we want to live and feel like we're right before God. I remember a, a story when I was in university. I don't remember why we were studying this, so I don't know if I should get points for it, but uh, we were talking about Benjamin Franklin and uh, he was one of the founding fathers of the United States. And Benjamin Franklin, uh, he at least had some affinity, some desire to be a Christian or know the Lord uh, and, and read his Bible. So Benjamin Franklin had a Bible, but when he would read it, he would get into stuff that, I don't understand this, I don't agree with this, I'm not sure I wanna do this. So what he would do and I don't recommend this, he would literally take a pair of scissors and he would cut stuff out of the Bible so that he could read it and say, that looks good, yep, I'm doing that, oh, I agree with that, yes, Lord, amen. Hey, look, I've got it all figured out, I'm doing great. And that sounds ridiculous, but again, I will say, sometimes we essentially do the same thing in practice. Sometimes churches do the same thing. And, and I'm not even trying to be political about it, but you guys probably could think of some examples of what I'm talking about. And, and my point in, all, in saying all that is this. As a church, we need to not only value the knowing of God's word, but the doing of it. We need to make sure it's coming through properly and it's not only coming into our mind, but we are living it out. And yes, we're gonna stumble in that. Yes, we always need to grow in that. This will be a lifelong adventure. It's a journey, not a destination. But I'm saying we need to take it seriously as a church. We need to be a people who value God's word. We need to be a people of the word. Again, both knowing it and doing it. That's how it's supposed to work. The third and final thing I would say is this. We need to examine ourselves regularly, routinely. I, I'll say this. No matter whose ears this is landing on, this is true. God loves you. God has good things for you. God has grace and peace for you. Now, again, I will say, if you're not a Christian yet, if you've never accepted Jesus, that's priority one for you. You need to have your sins forgiven through Christ. You need to become part of God's family through Christ. You need to enter into relationship with God through Christ. If you have no idea what that means, come talk to me. I would love to talk to you about that. Now, 
Most of us in the room are Christians. Again, I will say, God loves you and he has grace for you. So, we read in Romans, we can boldly approach his throne of grace, okay? When we look at our lives, when we're examining ourselves, and again, if you're like me, you'll notice some things that aren't quite up to snuff. We're not condemned. We don't have to run from God, but we can run to God. That's what I'm saying. And, and, and what I would say about examining ourselves, none of us are immune to apostasy. None of us are immune to falling off of the path. It could happen to any of us. And, and, and again, I'll stress, this is different than the occasional sin or slip up. I'm not advocating for those either, but I'm just saying that this is largely directed at the large scale, willful, throwing away God's will, getting off his path, getting out of line with the scriptures. We need to examine ourselves. Friends, you need to ask yourself, am I in line with God's will? Are there areas in my life where I'm offside with God? What, what can I do to align myself more closely to him? Am I faithfully following and loving and serving the Lord Jesus? Or am I coasting? Am I drifting? Generally, we only drift one direction, by the way. Generally, you don't just drift into, into a stronger relationship with God. You gotta work for it. Anyway, this is really about the authority and the lordship of Jesus. Do we believe as a church that Jesus is Lord or do we not? Because if he's not, if he's not the Lord and we don't have to follow him, we can just do whatever we want. But if Jesus is Lord, then we need to make sure that we, again, live as though he is. And if you are, if you are here today and you are saying, you know, as we talk about this, something's kind of bubbling up to the surface. There's something that you know. Uh, this is not something that God is super thrilled with in my life. I want to just encourage you. Again, God has grace and peace for you. And you can meet with him and give that over to him. And, and allow that to come under his authority and his lordship. And he will meet you in that. God will help you in that. God will change your heart. God will be with you through that process and God will cause it to happen. God has good things for you if we align ourselves to his will. Now, as a church, here's what I'll say uh, to close. We need to make sure, right from the leadership down on through, we need to make sure that we are putting Jesus first. We need to make sure that his will is our highest priority. I was just reminded of the words of John the Baptist. He said, he, as in Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. We need to make sure that his will is the most important thing to us. Because, listen, it should be. It should be. This is where we need to go as a church. So what I want to do, uh, as I kind of come in for a landing here, I want to pray for us. I would, I would encourage you just to bow your head and to close your eyes with me. And uh, I want to just pray over our church in light of this.